good to go. All right, it's right on the side. Red button, left hand side. Or right, right this. Whatever. We're good. Okay. Let's start. This is Luis Acuna. It is ten twenty four on July thirtieth, twenty twelve. I am interviewing. Mrs. Jane Rivera and Mr. Gabriel Rivera at the Carver Library for the Emma Esparrientos Mexican American Cultural Center Oral History Project. Do you, Jane, Mr. Gilbert, uh, give permission to, uh, for me to record this interview on behalf of the Austin History Center for this project? Certainly. Yes. Definitely. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and start. Just start with some uh, basic questions. Um, you can state your full name. Uh, Please. My name is um, Gilbert Cortez Rivera, born and raised in Austin, in East Austin, Texas. And Jane Haney Rivera, and I was born in Ohio, raised in Michigan, and have been a proud East Austinite for 30 years. So you, you've lived in Austin for all your life, correct? Correct. And as soon as you moved to, to, from Michigan to the States, you also, you never really left Austin, uh, no. East Austin? No. Why is that? Well, East Austin, back in the day when I first moved here, was like a small town in and of itself. It was not part of the city of Austin at all. When you crossed Interstate 35, you knew you were outside the big city and you were back to a, your own home, familiar, friendly town. All the people who lived here were, if not related to each other, lifelong friends and colleagues and that sort of thing. And it was like a small town, and I grew up in a small town. So to me, it was much preferable to the city of Austin. And for me, I was born and raised actually maybe five or six blocks from where I was born. I was born at a home um, right out of a midwife. And I did leave the city of Austin for a little while. Went to the University of Washington in Seattle 1973-74 and came back in 1980 and moved back into East Austin because it was that family atmosphere and I've got a really large family that all live within maybe a mile and a half to two miles from where I live and they um, it's just a place that is home you you know your neighbors everybody knows you you know them and it's a real friendly atmosphere that um, has existed for many, many years, and unfortunately it's um, beginning to not be that way anymore with the current gentrification that's going on. It's almost a displacement of a, a, community, a sense of community, would you agree? It, it's very much a displacement. It really, I have uh, told people that what, I, what my perception of what's going on is, is that these, as the pilgrims landed in the Mayflower, from the Mayflower in the East Coast, first thing they saw was Indians. And the first thing they, they did decided to move them further west and further west and further west. Well, the new pilgrims, Interstate 35 is the frontier. They cross, they, they, cross, they land east of Interstate 35 and they see a bunch of indigenous peoples again. And they're moving us out slowly and slowly. But in this case, instead of moving us east or west, they're moving us east. And sooner or later, we will no longer be part of East Austin, which is the main thing that keeps a lot of people in East Austin is the social fabric, the culture, 
the atmosphere, the beauty of it, which is what attracts a lot of the new pilgrims. But when they come in, they destroy what has attracted them, and thereby causing the rest of us who have been here all of our lives to have to move out because of, of higher um, taxes. They come and build like mansions. They come and, and tear down homes. They come and um, buy out iconic businesses that have been, been here on the east side for many, many years. You can go down almost any street in, in East Austin that's a, that's a business corridor, and there are very few um, Hispanic, Latino businesses left anymore. So the destruction of the neighborhood is destruction of culture, destruction of, of families, and destruction of the economy that has made this East Austin feel and be like it's been for many, many years. And if I could comment on that briefly, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed in my Parks Board hat by someone from UT, a student at UT, who asked, well, where are the people from East Austin moving? Are they establishing a new community somewhere? And I thought that was a very naive question, but on the other hand, it was a real question. And my answer was no, it's not being done as a concerted effort. People are pushed out by things happening in their own personal lives that are related to the gentrification. One could be the parents passed away. That house is sold because none of the kids want it. They each have their own homes now in, in far-flung communities. So that tie to the community is gone. It could be, and this is the case for many, many of the elderly and, and disabled, they can no longer afford their taxes. Taxes have been going up nearly $1,000 a year, every year since 2000. And, and that's on homes that don't have a homestead exemption. And all kinds of people are, are protesting the tax increases, but it's based on the market value. And there never used to be a market in East Austin when I first moved here. You had to stand in line to wait for somebody to evacuate a family residence because there weren't new houses being put in. So it's just completely changed. There, the community is not being replaced, it's just being dispersed. Exactly, I would agree. And you mentioned also that 35 is seen as a buffer or a border. You know, but in 1960, 1970s, 1980s, it was people were being pushed into that area, Latinos, African Americans. That's what East Austin was known for. And so, how, how well, how does race and class? Well, I, I think that when we talk about new immigrants coming into and in, 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 into East Austin, race is really, in my point of view, is not the issue. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of class. It's, a, uh, it's um, Saul Alinsky used to say, there's, there's, uh, there's several types of people. The have a little, the haves want more, the have, the have a little want more, the have nots. And we basically are the have nots. Then the have a little want more are the, the yuppies and the hipsters that are coming in. And the haves, are the more wealthier people that are coming in and building quarter million dollar, million dollar mansions. And, and then they're no longer Mac mansions, they're literally mansions in East Austin. And so what's going on, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's an issue of class. If you have the, the money to wave in front of a, of, of a person that has no money, 
who may have been living in their home for 30, 40 years. They may have been inherited from their family. You wait $100,000, $200,000 in front of them. That's equivalent to a million dollars or more for them because they've never seen that kind of money. So they get, they get bought into it and, and they, they accept the money without really doing the research, realizing that $100,000, even $200,000 is not going to buy them a home in Austin, Texas these days. It may get them into a rental, it may get them into public housing, or they may wind up going out of town because, moving out of town because they, they can no longer afford this. So that $100,000 really disappears pretty quickly when, when you have to live on a, on a daily basis. But it's about class. It's, it's, it's the struggle in Austin, Texas today is, is all about class. It's, it's about economics. Those that have the money have the power to displace whomever they want because those that have the money do have the ear of the, the planners and the city of Austin and our city fathers and mothers downtown who make these decisions. And the Imagine Austin plan that was just passed is a good example of that. That projects by the year 2030, at least 750,000 more people come into East Austin alone. And, and I like to say that it's uh, the Imagine Austin plan is really Imagine Austin without black and brown and poor people. And that's what, what, that's what they're imagining. Austin without poor people, Austin without people of color. The African American community used to be approximately 32, 34%. Today it's 7%. And they've all pretty much been moved out of East Austin. The, 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 the Hispanic population is growing to about 37%. But the, the, the population is dispersed throughout the city. The Holly neighborhood used to be pretty much 80, 90% or more uh, Latinos in 2000. Today, if I remember correctly, it's more like 20, 25% Latino and the rest is, is uh, the gentrifiers, the pilgrims that have come in and put their flag up and they put their flag up on a piece of property, they tear it down and, they, and, and you see McMansion going up. You can drive up and down Holly, Canterbury, any of those streets and you'll see the, the displacement that has happened and it's uh, very distressing because these are the neighborhoods that many of us used to walk and play, play in, and, and that's virtually almost impossible. One day, I, we were, my wife and I were driving down 6th Street. 6th Street is no longer the Latino place to hang out and go have uh, dinner or go have a cold beer or whatever you want because it's been uh, replaced by all, uh, pretty much all Anglo businesses. And my wife and I were driving down the street one day and I told her, quick, quick, grab the camera. And she said, what's wrong? Quick, gra grab the camera, I told her. She said, what's wrong? And I said, take a picture. I just, spot I just spotted a Mexican walking on 6th Street. And that was the only Mexican person that I had seen on 6th Street for about four blocks. And it just shocking when you drive by there and you see all of the trailers that are, that are there, all of the people walking up and down the streets, uh, all the bicycles and all of that is, is, is uh, all of the improvements that are being made to East Austin today are being made in, in to encourage the continued gentrification of our neighborhoods. 
Why did they not do all of those improvements when it was only us? Because we did not have the money, we did not have the power to influence the people downtown, and these guys do. A little bit more on that. Gilbert said up front that it's class, and yet he kept talking about race. And I want to hone in on what um, is really the difference between the two. East Austin was originated by the city council, clearly not the one that's there today. It was done in 1928. But it was deliberately set aside as an area where black people were to live. And the whole purpose was that this was during the era of Jim Crow. The whole purpose of that decision was to keep black people out of the white areas, and the white area was expanding. So if they pushed black people east, they could set up one recreation center, one this, one that, one school. They created a colored high school. And all of those things were to avoid having to create separate but equal anywhere else in town. If they gave one to the entire black population, they figured that was it. It was convenient. And at the time, of course, since this was in the late, uh, the early part of the 20th, 20th century, just the end of the 1800s, black people had been slaves in the previous century. And in Texas, slavery wasn't even acknowledged that it was over after the Emancipation Proclamation for three whole years. And so the population of, of black people had been kept enslaved far longer than was even legal. So that history has to be understood to understand that. It's almost impossible to talk about the whole class issue that's impacting East Austin without discussing race. Now, the Mexicanos come into the picture because of the fact that Mexicanos came here as workers. Mexicanos, in the earliest uh, immigrations to the United States, were generally working people. And they used to live downtown. Gilbert and I, when working with Waters Lincoln, had worked with a gentleman, Mr. Pete Martinez, and he was chair of the Rainy Area Neighborhood Association, RANA. And uh, he was in his 60s at the time that Rainy was being gentrified, which we will probably talk about more. And during that time, he said, I was already moved out of Little Mexico, which was where the city council chambers now sit. And I've been moved farther and farther east. This is as far as I can go. If they move me out of here, I don't think I'll make it. He didn't. He died shortly after he was pushed out of Rainy. So it's, it's difficult to talk about this whole class issue without talking about race. And, and, and Rainy Street was the last Mexican neighborhood west of Interstate 35. And today, it, and one of the things back in the, in the early 80s when we were fighting to protect Rainy Street, people were, the city council people and other city officials were saying, Rainy Street doesn't belong in the central business district because we there can be a better a higher and better use for the land that's there instead of, of, of little bungalows as they call them well they I succeeded in moving out the, the majority of the people from Rainy Street the original natives that live there and now they've got the highest and best use they've got bars if, if that's highest and best use as compared to people living in homes and taking care of their gardens and flowers and so forth, I really question the city of Austin and its, and its attempt to convince us that Austin is a, is a family friendly city, especially 
for black and brown people, poor people in general. I don't think it's a friendly, friendly city for us at all. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about well, let's talk about the Mac, and let's talk about how how did it all started. Who in that it was talks nineteen sixty eight. How did all that come about? Well, I think one of the things about the back back in the, um, as they say back in the day. In 1968, uh, I was personally just graduating from high school, and I wasn't that involved in the local politics. But I know that there were a lot of people, because I was just getting involved in the local politics at the time. A lot of people were asking, "Why is there not a facility that that is geared towards our community? Why don't we have?" the same type of facilities as, as the other side of town has. Because it's always been two Austins, as James said, East Austin and the rest of Austin. And so it was it was a time when people were beginning, the Chicano movement was in its heyday. People started opening up their eyes and realizing that uh, there was something going on that needed to be uh, addressed and I think those were the, at that time is when, when the different organizations started to form. Mesha, Mayo at the University of Texas, in East Austin, myself and, uh, and several other people started the Brown Berets. We, we opened up, uh, uh, started running people for city council and so forth. So the awakening of that, uh, of that uh, silent Brown uh, community started started coming about, and um, it was like the angry dragon finally, you know, started uh, seeing what was going on, and many of the issues came out of police brutality, lack of, of affordable housing then and in, and today, uh, lack of uh, good schools, lack of uh, health centers, lack of food stores lack of paved streets, lack of uh, uh, infrastructure in, in the city of Austin. The, the citizens of Austin were telling the city council back then, we pay our taxes like everybody else, and our taxes should go towards bettering our neighborhoods, our, our infrastructure, city lights, paved streets, medical centers, but very little of the money was ever inverted into East Austin, it was always for West Austin. So this was, and, and continues to be, I always have described it as a third world country. We had unpaved streets, we had very few if any grocery stores, we had no medical centers, few doctors, and any time and, and, and every time we wanted to buy groceries, see the doctor, go to a movie, do anything that any normal US citizen has to do, we had to cross the border to West Austin to enjoy some of those amenities, and we still do. And that continued for a very long time. Gilbert and I just wrote a, a book about Rosewood, the neighborhood where we currently live, and one of the little stories that we put in there is when we were in the 1980s, when we first bought our house, and we were raising our kids, kids, all kids, like pizza, and there was no pizza delivery service and no pizza pickup service anywhere east of Interstate 35, and as a rule, none of the companies would deliver east. So whenever we would order a pizza to have for the kids, 
Gilbert would get in the car and go drive and meet the pizza delivery person at the gas station on the other side of Interstate 35, hand them the money, they'd hand us the pizza as though it were a drug deal. And, and that's because nobody wanted to come into East Austin. And, you know, you, you, don't, you don't ever really hear about the history of the struggle of the Latino population. You just hear glimpse here and there in high school. Even in undergrad, you, you take history courses, you really don't hear the struggle. It's when you move further into a master's program, to a PhD program, when you really get to know the history of, of, of the struggle, this political awakening, as, as you say. Mm -hmm. um, I think, would, would you, do you agree that this political awakening then is still the same as today, or is there a lack, is there apathy now with, with a lot of Latinos in East Austin, or just in general in Austin? My thinking is, not having been an East Austin native, that things have been changing so rapidly and so completely out of the control of the original folks who lived there that there is an apathy among the older people. And I say apathy, it's basically resignation. It's not really apathy. It's like, what can I do? I'm 60-something years old. I'm 70-something years old. Even my kids don't live around here anymore. And so what you may perceive as apathy amongst some of the older generation, I think, is resignation. But among some of the younger folks, if you haven't lived it, you don't know what it's like, as you were mentioning. For example, Gilbert's life story is very interesting. He's in his 60s when he was a child, right here in Austin, Texas. He was not permitted to speak Spanish. He was in first grade for three years because he couldn't speak English. And they used to wash his mouth out with soap for speaking Spanish, the only language that he knew. That was right here in Austin, Texas. The liberal capital of Texas. The stripping of a culture. Yes. Your identity. Yeah. Completely. The destruction of a culture, destruction of, 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 a, of a lifestyle that, that was built by the working class people of East Austin. We have to go back to what Jane was saying in 1928 and later on when the blacks and the, and the, and the, and the uh, Mexicanos would move, forcefully moved into East Austin. One of the things that, that moved the African-American community was the schools and so forth that Jane, that Jane talked about. Another thing that caused the Mexican-American community to move, the Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, which is down the street from us, was in West Austin. And they moved it east, knowing that the, the people would follow their religion. So that's how a lot of Mexicanos wound up over here. Um, the, the need for, for new leadership is extremely important today. And we may want to uh, do some self-criticism here in, in that the leaders of the 60s and 70s and so forth may not have uh, done their job adequately, adequately enough to bring up the newer generation. And I think the, the, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding besides in the schools, but for people who live in the community, is in fact, uh, you're dealing with a, a society that only accepts you if you have be totally become immersed in that society. So if you have, if you call yourself Mexican-American, you're not a patriot because you call yourself a Mexican. Uh, if you call yourself Latino, you're not a patriot. If you call yourself a Chicano, you're a militant, a radical or somebody who wants to tear down the system. Uh, 
well, the system does need to be toned down. I guess I, I've been telling you I call myself a Chicano. <laughs> and and that it, it needs to be built up again. And I think that young people like, like yourself and others that are not learning the history of what happened when, when the Chicano struggle, it, it started before the 60s. I mean, the struggle for self-determination and, and has, has been going on since the border was since 1838, I think it was, 48, when, when the border was made. It's like, uh, like Mexicanos say, we didn't cross the border, the, co the border crossed us. So that's struggles that have, up into 1920s, there were actually people living on this side of the United States that were, that were fighting for liberation of Texas and the Southwest. If you read the history, people were fighting up to the 1920s in this side of the border. We don't hear about that because, uh, like I used to tell my children, when you go to history classes, when you go to social studies classes and so forth in high school, remember, it's his story that they're telling you. It's his story that they're gonna try to convince you that it's what, what it's about. What my job is as a parent is to teach you our story. And so my children got in trouble because they would, they would stand up and say, no, David Crockett is not my hero. No, uh, Jim Bowie is not my hero. David Crockett killed Indians. Jim Bowie had slaves. Sam Houston had slaves. Those aren't my heroes. And when, when they were teaching them that, they would say that and they would get in trouble. But they knew their history. The same thing in, in universities. What they're teaching you at a, at a university I went to university, Jane went to university, is they're teaching you their story. And it is only the, the people that, that uh, want to learn more that the best learning that I ever had was the school of the streets, the school of my parents and my ancestors, and the schooling that I gave myself by reading anything and everything that I could get my hands on. My education in, in college, it was great, but my education at home was even better. Following up on that, I think that one of the reasons why we're guilty of not having done a better job of, of putting the information out to the next generation is that at the same time that we were trying to teach them about what our generation had been through, we were also giving them everything we possibly could because that's a normal parental thing that you do. You try and improve life for your children. And I think that because they hadn't felt the individual suffering and pain as much as our generation did, that perhaps that's where we failed. Not that we were good to our children, but that each and every time that they got something that we didn't remind them and tell them. But you don't. As a parent, all you're doing is thinking, how can I provide the best for my kids? One other thing that I did was, for example, my, my, my children are very politically astute. They know what's going on and they know their history. And I made sure that they know their history. For example, my son, his name is Che Emiliano, or Che Guevara Emiliano Zapata. And he has been asked questions about his name all his life. 
he's 37 years old, and he can give and sit down and give you a, a political um, discussion about both of his namesakes that makes a dad proud. Um, one of the things that he did one time, we, we, I, bought, I bought a new house. We were having dinner, the first dinner at the house, and one of our guests said everybody hold hands, we're gonna pray, and she was saying, thank you God for this house, thank you God for Gilbert's good luck, thank you God for this, thank you God for that. And my son raises his hand, and he says, Dad, why are we just thanking God? Why don't we thank the workers who built the house? And I said, yes. <laughs> the, the political indoctrination took. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just as another thought, our daughter, who also has a political name, I'll let Gilbert talk about that a bit, but she has been involved doing um, a lot of work with youth to try and help them keep from getting into jail because one of the problems we have with the third generation is that there are a lot of young people who in desperation drop out of high school and then there's nothing to do and they can't get a job and they end up in drugs or into all different kinds of things that are not doing them any good. And so um, we work with an organization known as Red Salmon Press, Red Salmon Arts, and they have a bookstore, Resistencia Books. And uh, Tanya has done a lot of work with them. And so we're proud that both of our children did get the message. And her name, Tanya, is for uh, when Che Guevara was in Bolivia, they, uh, there was a, a female, and she was German, and her name, the girl, was Tanya. So she was named after her. But I think getting to the crux of our, of our conversation today, for me, my beginnings of getting involved with the issues of the mass was basically in the, in the late 70s, early, early 80s. And that was after I had come back from the University of Washington. I got involved with uh, the League of United Chicano Artists, WICHA, and it was one of several organizations that were uh, politicking, lobbying, um, encouraging the city to provide a facility that would, uh, that would be for the, the Mexican-American culture, and Lucia was one of the one of the groups that, that uh, struggled around that. And I think one of the things that, that uh, happened that was good and bad at the same time, it was good that there were many organizations that were, that were vying for this, were, were politicking for something that happened, which was good because it brought a lot of people together over the issue. But unfortunately, like many times that has happened in the past with, with struggles. Um, the best way I can describe it is the, the, the crabs and the bucket syndrome. You have people that are trying to go up and do better and, and do something that is good and there's another, somebody at the, on, the, on the bottom of the bucket, a crab pulling you down. Somebody else tries and they pull you down. And so what happens there is that people wind up, those, those groups that were in that bucket wind up 
being so, um, what would be the term, so concentrated on trying to become the first one to come out of that bucket that we lost sight of the unity that we needed to have to get the MAG because the groups that I worked with, we clearly wanted the MAG to be in East Austin, not west of Interstate 35, which is where it is now. We wanted it to be in East Austin, in the middle of the Barrio, where people could enjoy it, where people could see it every day. And, and uh, there were others that wanted it to be downtown, to be more like um, the traditional museums and cultural centers that the city had. And many of them wanted it to be a city facility. And what I think happened there is that the city of Austin saw the opportunity because we were all fighting amongst ourselves and they basically said, these people are never gonna get this, their, themselves together. They don't have the ability to manage a, a program if we ever put one up. So whenever it gets put up, we will be a city, it will be a city facility, which I think has been a detriment overall to, to what uh, the ideals were that for the neighborhoods and one of the things that that, uh, that one of a facility that was that was available to the community that was there, all we had to do is, is, is get the right politics was the White Lincoln Institute. White Lincoln was on the on the corner of Interstate 35 and President Chavez, where the IHOP is today. By the way, I encourage everybody to never eat at the IHOP. I've never eaten at the IHOP. And I may be the only person in Austin that boycotts it. But that's okay, because that's where the Water Lincoln building used to be. And to me, it would be sacrilegious to go in there and order a pancake for the, uh, behind the struggle that, uh, that, that happened around the Water Lincoln Institute. The Water Lincoln was an old Baptist church that was built in the 1920s, I think. And it was a tri-story building, beautiful building, had, had um, Theater had had everything that could that was needed for a, a cultural center, and it was uh, owned by um, uh, it was an Antioch uh, college, and it was bought with federal funds, and then something happened that it was sold to a private uh, investor, private developer, and the the neighborhood, which was Rainy Street at the time, had. Uh, wanted it, it was a symbol of the, 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 the stableness of the neighborhood and also a possibility that it could be the, 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 the cultural center that we were looking for. We struggled for a long, long time. Ultimately, it was bulldozed down and it was, in essence, the beginning of the end of the rainy, rainy street. There was a city, Yard where the where the what where the Mac is today, and that was used for a while as a a temporary facility while they built the Mac. But what I find interesting is that it was a it was basically a a, a warehouse that that people were forced to 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 be in, and they were talking about the mid eighties. And why were we? forced 
to do what we had to do in a warehouse that had no air conditioning, that had no insulation, had nothing. And it reminded me of, of the history of when people were moving to East Compton. They were told, you're worthless. We're going to send you to a part of town that had not, no, nothing in it. But the people that were moved to East Austin, as they say, took, took uh, limones and made limonada. Well, the same thing happened with this warehouse. I can guarantee you the, 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 the people in power said, we'll throw them in this facility. They'll get, they'll get bored. They'll get pissed off. They'll say, you know, we don't want to continue here. But great things happened in that, in, in, in that in that little warehouse that uh, today probably were, are and were the precursor of what the Mac is today because out of there began the ideas of how great a facility we could have if the community had access to it on a regular basis. And I think one of the biggest problems that we see today with the Mac is that it is a facility that is sometimes out of reach of, of community organizations. They can't afford it. Some of the people in East Austin don't even know where the MAC is. There's very little, if any, outreach done out into the community. Um, we've had several um, events there that we call the Mexican-American Experience, where people have come and uh, we play music and it's free. And if you, if you stand up on the second floor of the Mac and look east, you can see just droves of people coming in. It's a beautiful sight. And then you start talking to the people, and people say, I've, not, I've never knew it was here, or I've never been here before. This is great. Why, why don't we know about it? And the Mexican-American Cultural Center, being a city facility, is more geared toward being a city facility than a cultural center, I think. And this is, there may be people that disagree with me, but I firmly believe that the city of Austin sees it as nothing more than another building where city employees work, like the council chamber, like Boston Energy, like, like the water department. It's just a building for city staff to be in. And they really don't see it as a place for Mexican-American activities to happen. And one of the problems I think that, that we have is that some of the, many of the activities that happen there are not about Mexican-Americans. They're about Bolivia, about Argentina, about Mexico, which I love the cultures, but Remember, it says the Mexican-American Cultural Center, not the Bolivian-American Cultural Center, or the Argentinian-Mexican uh, Cultural Center, it's a Mexican-American Cultural Center. And that should be its priority. They had, an, uh, they had a, um, a, a photo exhibit of, of uh, Hispanic bomberos, Hispanic firemen. So I went, oh, great, we're going to see all the Hispanic firemen, maybe even our council member Mike Martinez, who used to, he used to be a fireman. Maybe his photo is up there. Well, you, show, you go in and beautiful photos, great, great.
great photographers. They were all photos of, of, uh, of bomberos from all over Latin America. Not one from Austin, Texas. So when you see that, it sort of discourages you because you like the photos, like the exhibit, think it's great, but where are our heroes? Where are our people that are making it in, in Austin? They don't show them. And, and that goes again back to the, the, my basic premise is that Austin basically is a racist town. Compared to the Guadalupe Center in San Antonio, or, no or the Carver's Yeah, there's no comparison. Obviously there's a, there's a lacking. There's a lot of, you know, you meant, looking at the structure itself, the architecture, it's very, it's white, feels cold in there. What was your initial vision when you first, when you, when you finally realized this is going to happen, you know, 10 years ago, or, you know, it took 30 years to finally build, but now that you see it. I personally saw every wall with a mural on it. The murals, the tradition of muralism from Diego Rivera um, and, and, and others in, in, in Mexico has been the way to show the people's history. If you look at murals, even the murals that are here, out here in East Austin, the, the one that was recently uh, redone at the Pan Am Recreation Center, it, it, the murals tell you your history. But maybe it's, 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 maybe it's, uh, it's interesting to look at the white wall because that tells you no history. It's white. If you want to take it one step further, it's the kind of history that the white establishment wants to, us to have about East Austin. We're a blank slate. We, we are nobody. We have nothing. When they knock down the mural, when they knock down what is it we had fought hard to get the Water Lincoln Institute to be uh, designated an historical place because the building was built in the 1920s. Well, the Austin Hysterical Commission, as we call them, basically said, there's no history there, it's contemporary. So we can't put a historic plaque on this building because it's contemporary history. Well, they've got buildings that were built in the 1920s with historical plaques all over the city. Why couldn't they do that? They couldn't do it because it was our building. It was our, if it had been somebody else's building, it probably still be there with a beautiful historical plaque. So the whiteness of the walls, I think, in, at the back is not a mistake. I would love to see the Mac open up to where you can have murals, you can have permanent art displays of our history. Um, you can have a place to archive your history. There are many of us that have boxes and boxes of, of history that, that we've lived, that we've written about, that we've photographed, that we have in our closets. I've, I've gone to the Americans and said, my wife and I have an extensive art collection of, 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 of Chicano art. We would want to donate when we leave this world. We'd like to donate it to the Mac. 
So we can't take it because this is a cultural center, not a museum. And and so there obviously there's a big difference between a cultural center and a museum. A cultural center, from their perspective, is something that you come and throw a hat on the floor, dance around it a little bit, and do the little Mexican hand dance, and you leave, and then it's blank again. It's dead. It has no feeling. It's cold. That's not a cultural center. That's a city facility. As long as it continues to be a city facility that is running that way, it will be nothing more than... When I see the Mac, I see a big, a big, if you will, like maybe a dinosaur or something like that, and it's bleached white bones. And that's all I see, those bones that are white that need to be brought to life. I've got, and I'm not the only one, I've got all these images of what it should be, but again, as long as it's run by the city of Austin, it's just gonna be a, a, a white pile of bones that really has no feeling and just cold. What I expected to see when the mat came up was what is Lincoln Institute all over again, or the Guadalupe Cultural Center, as you said. Uh, Gilbert and I are friends with people from Guadalupe. We go down every year for the Conjunto Festival, who a friend of ours has been running for over 30 years now. And Guadalupe is an old facility that was renovated and loved to its current position. And that's essentially what Juarez Lincoln was. It was an old building that had been loved and uh, artist Raul Valdez put up murals inside and outside the community had taken that facility and made it theirs. And that's kind of what I was expecting to see when they built the MAC, is something of a similar nature. And I was surprised because I came to Austin to teach at What is Lincoln. I was at the time, I'd just finished my doctorate at Michigan State and I was teaching at uh, East, um, what was it called anyhow, Eastern Michigan University. and. Um, I was teaching anthropology and sociology. I was also on the board of United Migrant Opportunity, which was the Department of Labor funded migrant serving organization in Michigan. I came down here for a National Association of Farm Worker Organizations meeting held at what is Lincoln. And I interviewed for a position there while I was here. And so I came to Austin planning to work there and I considered it to be a Chicano center, very much like El Centro de la Raza in Seattle or Guadalupe became in San Antonio. So I was stunned when I went to report to work and the building was padlocked shut. No one had called me, no one had said anything. So I moved here from Michigan to a place that had died. What I was told had happened was that Antioch and Texas Education Agency had gotten into a dispute about accreditation for what is Lincoln. And what is Lincoln and another um, college that Antioch was sponsoring in the Valley were both closed and never reopened. And a lot of people who are somebody here in Austin were graduates of what is Lincoln. So that was a center, a learning center. It, was, it wasn't just a place to house art or an occasional exhibition. And I think that's what Gilbert's getting at is what we expected to see is something with ongoing life where the people would have 
ongoing exhibits where the people would be involved in deciding where things went and, and that sort of thing. And you know, to the staff's credit, I think they try working with the advisory board and that sort of thing, but it's really not the same thing as having something that is truly a community-based organization. There's always a disconnect between the community and city officials, uh, other people <coughs> that are running the MAC. Um, there's really no, they're not talking to each other, it appears like, so people aren't really coming and using the center as you hope <coughs> it would be used for. Well, there are charges to use the center, for one thing. And so some of the community-based things that people wanted to do, they can't do there because it costs too much. And one of the reasons for that is um, there isn't adequate funding to fund the MAC to be the kind of center that the community wanted and needed. Well, the, uh, for, to call something a cultural center is, is to be able to open the doors <coughs> and have available to you as many resources as, as, as are possible one location. For me, a, co a, a community center, a cultural center, should be able to, uh, the Centro de la Raza, for example, in, 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 uh, in Seattle, they have a, a bookstore, they have library, they have a kitchen where, where they cook meals for people, they have, they have daycare center, they have it's a, uh, they have a, a theater where they show movies to people on a regular basis. They open it up for fundraisers for neighborhood organizations that are raising money for cancer research, what have you. And so it's a place where you know you can go in and you're more than likely going to be able to get help. They have ESL programs. They have all of these, and that's what we thought, or, or I thought, and I know that some people would say, well, a cultural center is not a place to go to ESL programs, they got that at ACC. But some people would, you, you, you go where you feel comfortable, and the, and, and the match should be a place where you feel comfortable. Right. And sometimes you don't feel comfortable, you feel like you have to almost bow down and say, please, please make room for us here. We had an event, and we went to the board of the MAC, and they had South by Southwest was making a presentation to the board, and South by Southwest was saying we want to use the MAC for our South support by South by events. The uh, Mexican American Experience South, uh, um, what was that? Leonard Davila. Myself and others went and said, We want to use the Mac on the same days that the South by wants to use the Mac. And we said, Oh man, we got the big elephant in the room, and here we are a little, little group of guys that wants to put on some Mexican music. And they, they listened to them and said, Thank you very much, we love you. And it was all this kissy kissy kind of stuff. And they let them go. And then we made our presentation. And they said, uh, 
Can you guarantee it? This is the board of the MAC. Can you guarantee us that your people won't come into my, my, my building and put graffiti on the walls? And we looked at, and we looked at each other and said, what the is going on here? And being the quiet person that I am, I got up and, 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 and sort of got into a little rant about it. How dare you, how dare you <coughs> say what you just said? You just had a bunch of white people coming in here. You kissed their ass. You didn't say one word to them. And then you tell me to not put graffiti on the wall? How arrogant and racist can you be? Oh, we, I'm not being racist because Chicanos aren't the only ones that put graffiti on the wall. No, but you told me that. And you told us that and we're all brown. So the implication is that Chicanos are the only ones who do graffiti. So that's the kind of reception you get sometimes at the map. There's been people that have incredible artists that have uh, Jose, Jose Trevino, for example, a good one, an incredible artist that has been wanting to get his artwork up on the Mac at the Mac for years. And they tell him he can't because he doesn't have the pedigree, if you will, of having had big shows in, in big places, uh, art, art facilities in the, from the past. But they get a, a, uh, an art, a photographer from Mexico that does photography of, of the cartels and the, the killings and all of this, and they put his photographs up. But not a local artist that's lived here all his life. He's got incredible art. So, you know, they, 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 allow this artist, this photographer, to put stuff up that is political, in a sense, because it, it shows crossing the border and the, 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 the Negra and all of that, and it showed what were very political photographs. But there was another friend of mine that put up some artwork, and he had some, some of his paintings that had images of the Negra, and the, and, the, and the fence and all, and they didn't let him put it up because it was too political. So their job is not to decide, not, not censor the artist. The artist does his artwork because he has some feeling about what, what he's doing, but the Mac's job should not be to censor the artist, and that's what they're doing. So it's very difficult, you know, it depends on who, you know, I would imagine if they had somebody that had Jesus on the cross flipped upside down, this is my artwork, I would imagine they would probably say no. But if they had, or maybe if they had Jesus as a black man or as an Indian, 
or as whatever, but the white Jesus that we've all been programmed to believe he was, I would bet you they wouldn't put him up because he's not the image that they want. So the Mac has a lot of growing up to do. The city of Austin has a lot of growing up to do because there are many things out there that they are losing out on. And as long as they keep censoring, as, they, as long as they keep charging people to go in there at the extraordinary high rates that they do, the MAC is going to continue to flounder. And I'm not a, a, a person that believes in, 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 uh, in conspiracy theories. But wouldn't you think that if the MAC continues to flounder, the city says 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know what? If this experiment didn't work, let's shut it down. It's no longer a Mexican-American cultural center. It's now the Alan Pariento City Public Works Department or whatever. If things fail, you change them. And if you purposely allow it to fail, then you have a reason to change them. But I'm not a, a, a conspiracy theorist. It's just an idea. One of the things that I get from what Gilbert's concerns are, and not just from his talking, but <clears throat> for many years, one of the concerns that he's expressed here this morning is the ongoing concern that the MAC isn't really representing Austin. You don't have Austin artists, let alone East Austin artists. You don't have a focus on the history of the community here. I understand the MAC staff are bringing in others from Latin America to educate the people here, but they don't have a base to be educating yet. So the people who come to the exhibits are not mostly from East Austin. And so that it's like this, you know, people working at cross purposes where the MAC staff are trying to bring in new things, but they aren't hitting the target that they want to hit. And part of the reason for that is because it doesn't have meaning to the people. You have to have meaning to the people to bring them in. And that same Mexican-American experience, the first one they had two years ago, that brought in the highest number of people to any event. And it was all local and San Antonio musical groups. Over 3,000 people came out. Each night. Each time. And many of them. Mm -hmm. It was like old, old uh, home week. Many of them were the ones that were saying, man, this is a beautiful place. I never knew it was here, or I knew it was here, but I had never come here, because I had never did anything for me to be willing to come out to cross Interstate 35 and come to see or here at the Mac. But this is something that I really wanted to see, and thank you for doing this. So, and, and this is the same people that they were thanking they were told, don't graffiti up the wall. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad to report that there were no graffiti on the walls either. <laughs> and they had a second year, and the second year was much less difficult. And the second year was also a credit to everybody. So when the MAC finally opened, did you guys attend the ceremony? No. I boycotted it for a long time. And 
I boycotted it for the same reason that I boycotted <coughs> the, um, the IHOP. It was not what I envisioned. It was not in my neighborhood. It was no, by that time it was built, it was no longer the Rainy Street neighborhood that we all knew and loved. And it, it was very difficult to go in there knowing the history of us fighting to, to protect the building that was bulldozed in front of our eyes of people crying, of people uh, dying uh, after they had been moved out. It was very difficult for me to go there and enjoy the building. And I, I think when I, when I finally did go, it was for an event that actually really um, hit me at home because it, it was something that was very important to me. And it's, um, and since then, I've been going on a pretty much regular basis, and I've gotten to know the, the, some of the staff. And I've tried in my own way and, and, and working with them, trying to help. I've said all of these negative things about the MAC, but at the same time, I don't, I, don't believe in just criticizing and, and just walking away and saying, there you go, I feel better now, I hope you feel bad. But it's, I also wanna help. I say, okay, what can I do? How can I sit with, with and Linda, how can I sit with Linda and say, here are some things, ideas that I have that might help you bring people in. I have a friend, the same friend that had a, an, an archer there, um, um, Ghost is his nickname. Roy Madrano. Um, he's an East Side Bato Loco, as he calls himself. <laughs> he's a chuco. He's uneducated, untrained in art and all. And he's been he's been doing artwork for many many years, beautiful artwork. And what he's been and he's been doing is a series of photographs of paintings. East Austin, as he says, I'm painting East Austin so people can remember it because it's disappearing. He's got paintings of Joe's Bakery, of Cisco's, <coughs> of Mission Funeral Home, of the Huawei Lincoln Building, of Pan Am, of the old slaughterhouse. The old uh, slaughterhouse that used to be <coughs> here where the, where the Cap Metro is now. Of all of these um, iconic places, the Pioneeria on East Third Street, Fort Benita, I think it was called. So a lot of these places are no longer there. And he's beautiful paintings. And he says, I've been calling the Mac, I've been calling the Mac, I've been calling the Mac, and they don't return my phone calls. And he came to my house all, all upset. And I said, well, really? Let's see. So I got on the phone, called them. And, um, and since I've been working with them, they knew me. And they said, well, have them bring their paintings over tomorrow. So I took the paintings over the next day, and we <coughs> walked out of there with a three-month show. So that's how I'm trying to help. So he had his artwork up for three months, and he actually sold a good portion of his artwork. And so, but at the same time, it doesn't have to take that to get people in. I mean, because I knew the staff, and maybe because they knew that I was kind of um, 
the type of person that isn't going to let down on them until <laughs> they say yes. <laughs> they say yes pretty quickly. It's better to say yes now than suffer for a few months while I, while I, while I tighten the screws on them. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's got, it, it should be more open. It should be, they should be willing to look at people that, that you've got a, a, a gentleman, a grandfather, or some kid, a kid's uh, bicycle club that, 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 that make all these really cool lowrider bikes. They should be able to walk in there and say, we've got something that we'd like to show the community. And they should be willing to be able to sit down with them and say, well, let's see what is there, is there something we can work out. Maybe the, the, the bike show is not big enough, but, but, but why don't we put the bike show with the car show at the same time? And why don't we put the bikes and the, and the cars at the same time that there's a concert going on? So you can get this mass of people coming out at one time to show, make it really, really outstanding. So there's opportunities out there, but I think one of the problems that we may have is that um, staff is formally trained in the ways of art, the art world. I'm not an artist, and I don't know what that training is, but they need to get off their high horse and realize that art comes in, 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 in many shapes and many sizes. And the majority of artists that are out there that are great artists are not school educated, college trained artists. There are people that are just putting down in, in, their, in their artwork, whether it's poetry, whether it's music, whether it's a painting, they're putting down their heartfelt feelings. And that's what they should show, the people's feelings, not if they've made certain artistic criteria that you learn in, in Art Appreciation 101, you know. So to me, it's, it's the heart of the community that is what they should be showing at the night, and they, really, and they don't show it. And again, that goes, that goes back when you see that stark white building. What are your thoughts? I think that the sense of art is called rascochismo, where it's the, the people's art, what the lived experiences, the, 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 uh, what they see as they portray themselves through art, mm -hmm. either through you know, painting on the walls, murals, or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. There, is a, there is a disconnect. I think that Roy's exhibit was a, a groundbreaker for the MAC, actually. And the good news is that Roy brought in all kinds of people to see his exhibit. It was very well received. And he sold quite a number of his works, not just to local people who wanted the painting of their facility, but to um, art experts who, who actually collect different kinds of art and everything. And, and it's actually given him a chance to go forward with that career. As a matter of fact, uh, Erlinda, uh, the director of the MAC, said that his art exhibit was the only, of all the art exhibits they've ever had, his art exhibit was the only one that ever sold any art off the wall. Nobody else had ever sold his art. And he was selling his art, they were taking it off the wall to buy it. That just goes to show you. And he's one of those untrained local artists. 
When you see his artwork, it immediately reminds you of uh, Grandma Moses type of art. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of art it has that's flat, but incredible with feeling, and you can feel East Austin in his art. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And people just loved it because it was, he brought people from East Austin into the Mac that had never been there because they knew what he had up on the wall. Mm -hmm. Again, what do you put on your wall that will bring people in? You have to think real carefully that if you're, if you're putting things on the walls, paint, paintings and artwork on the wall that only bring the, the, the art community, the hoity-toity community mm -hmm. that, that consider themselves above, afraid to leave the uh, art exhibits, are you really serving the community that you're supposed to be serving? That's part of the people that you're supposed to serve, but where's the, where's the other part? And for us, in East Austin, we've been fighting to protect our neighborhood, to save our neighborhood, to do what needs to be done to, for us to be here. The MAC is just one of those facilities that we want. It's there, whether we like it or not. And I've, after being there and knowing the people and knowing all the criticism that I've made about it, I want to see it work. I don't want to see it turn into just another city facility. And I want to see it work. I mean, I can see that tower at the Mac being in, 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 in San Antonio. One of the things that happened with the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center, it's a theater, right? If you, if you, if you see around the neighborhood, it, it, it encouraged the neighborhood to beautification. If you, if you go down the street, you've got the, the Candle is lived there. Como se llama? I don't know. I don't remember what they call it. Veladoras. It's a. It, it's like. It's a tower. It's a tower. It's four. Yeah. Have you seen it? It's a four or five stories high, and it's beautiful. It's got the Virgen, and it's and so I see that tower on on the picture there. Can you imagine that being in a, in a one of those beautiful candles above the city of Austin, where people could see it? It would be an incredible attraction. The difference between the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center and where it's at and the MAC, the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center is surrounded by uh, a, a Latino and a Chicano neighborhood that patronize it. The MAC is surrounded by a bunch of bars for people that don't patronize it. The Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center caused beautification projects to happen, you see all the buildings, the medical centers and all of that up and down the street. And you've been there, you've seen them. That's what the cultural center provided. It provided an opportunity for beautifying the rest of the <coughs> neighborhood around it. The MAC hasn't provided that. And it's because the neighborhood that was there, which was all Mexicanos, primarily is no longer there. So the MAC is not fostering beautification around itself. What is going on is, I think, again, this is my opinion, the bars and all of these um, places for people to hang out 
and, and get drunk in is in fact bringing down the mass. Because who wants to go to the ma to a facility that you have to go through a bunch of drunks and a bunch of a bunch of bars in order to get to a facility to see a place where some of your 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 heritage is being displayed? I don't. It becomes a destination. It becomes you have to make a con conscious effort to, to go to the destination rather than a neighborhood kid saying, "I'm going to go to the Mac. I'm going to go listen to X so and so up a point." You know, it makes it difficult. I think location. <coughs> I would concur. And there have been actually quite a number of events at the MAC since it was opened that are good for neighborhood, but its location makes it difficult for neighborhood people to get there. There have been a number of children's events that were appropriate, but you can't just send your kid to the MAC. You've got to literally drive them there and be aware of you know where they are mm -hmm. to come pick them up. So the kids have to cross Interstate, Interstate 35. Interstate 35, they can't walk across. I mean, they're little kids. Parents have to bring them in, and, and the events are held during the day. Parents are generally working class people. The kid were inside in the neighborhood, a block or two away, they could walk there. And, 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 and it, it, it just, I mean, the, the difference between the Guadalupe and the Mac here in Austin are worlds apart. I mean, there's no comparison. Jane and I generally will drive to San Antonio. <coughs> we'll drive to San Antonio to the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center to participate in their events much quicker than we would to go to the Mac. And we go to San Antonio a lot. That's how much we love it. It just, it, it feels just, right. It feels right, exactly. You belong here. Mm -hmm. It, it feels belongs right. to you. To you, you belong here. You've got mules. You've got you've got a panaderia down the street. You can smell the tortillas. You can. It's beautiful. You walk. You go to the Mac. You can smell the, the stench of beer on the streets. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's just it's 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 a world away. There's no way to compare. You know. Even going to into East Austin, going to Fiesta Garden, for example, going to, to Grandma Camacho's um, facility there is much more rewarding, much more beautiful to be able to be there because it's accessible, it's the community, you feel part of it, and so forth. Those things, those events that happen there, East of Interstate 35, are much more attended than events at the Mac that may, that may be for geared toward uh, local Chicanos because of, of where it's at. You, you'll have 100 times more people show up at Fiesta Garden for, <coughs> for an event than you will at the Mac simply because the Mac, again, that border is there and, and, and it's very difficult to cross that border a lot of times uh, because you're not used to going to the MAC. The MAC doesn't wave at you and says, vengan pa'ca. It basically just sits there as a white wall that, that is, is uninviting. And I think that that is almost a testament to the whole struggle of how we got the MAC. At the time, over 30, 40 years ago, 
that the community first started working to get them back, Rainy Street was definitely a part of East Austin. It was the last little extension west of 35, but Palm Park, lots of kids from the neighborhood would go across there to go swimming. In those days, it was safe to do so. And so all of that area was at that time still part of East Austin. So the Waters Lincoln Building being right there, it felt like part of the community because it still was. Now, 30, 40 years later, that neighborhood, there are still a few families there, but there are so few of them that are far outnumbered by the bars and the big, tall, high-rise apartment buildings and everything. And those people feel very cut off from the rest of East Austin, just like the Mac is cut off. And it's now actually zoned Central Business District. And so that whole, that community is never going to return in any shape, color, or class because it's now Central Business District. So the MAC is going to forever, if it's at that facility, be surrounded by the business district, which can be bars, which can be anything. And so I think that history has made that location unacceptable. And frankly, if it's relocated to what we know as Central East Austin today, if it takes 30 or 40 years to get there, by the time it's moved, it'll be in the wrong place again <laughs> because everybody's being moved out of East Austin right now. So, last thoughts. What are your, what are both your visions of the MAC? Is it, what's the best option? Move it, moving it somewhere else? <laughs> leaving it there? Uh, adding better cultural events? What's your vision the next five years, the next 10 years? Obviously, you both wanted it to succeed. I personally don't think it's realistic to think about moving it. And what is more, as I said, by the time you could move it, it would be too late. So I think, like it or not, that facility is going to be the Mexican-American Cultural Center that the city offers to the community. So from my perspective, if, if we're stuck with the location, then we have to do everything we can to work with the staff and the board and everybody else to get appropriate events. I think that we have facilities. <coughs> We're sitting in one right now, the Carver Library, right next door to the Carver Museum. That could be a good example of what the map could be. The, 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 the museum is incredible. It, it, uh, it displays and is constantly being used by the community. We went over there right now and there were three rooms that were filled with people using it because, again, it is in the community. I, I agree with Jane, it's unrealistic, but it would be a great dream if it was be, to be moved somewhere else. Maybe we could move, move it closer to, uh, to Montopolis Bridge or somewhere in Montopolis, because it would take a few years, quite a few years before Montopolis disappears, but at least it would have a life. Uh, but, Given that that's probably a pipe dream, I think that what really needs to happen is that the, 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 the city of Austin needs to begin to realize that the MAC is a unique facility that has its unique uniqueness <laughs> in itself must allow for <coughs> unique ways of running it. You have to start thinking beyond what you would train 
as a curator or as any of these uh, other uh, trainings that you may have had is uh, the Mac has to be more non-traditional in the sense that you have to be able to figure out non-traditional ways to bring people in. If it means having a, an exhibit of uh, Jose Flores, uh, Jose, Jose Trevino's artwork, and in order to attract few people, you give away tamales, so be it. Think out of the box. Think in ways that, you know, hook up with all the elementary schools that are around there. You know, get MAC staff to go out to the schools and do presentations in the schools. Um, do whatever it takes. Advertise. I don't. I have. They send emails. I'm on the email list of the events that are happening there. You know, I, I can decide whether to go to them or not. But they 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 make beautiful posters of events, you know, stick them up on the walls on East Austin, stick them up on, on, on where people go in the, in the, in the health clinics on, on, on East First, on Second Street, at the mental health facility, at, at the local restaurant. I mean, I'm an old-time neighborhood organizer, and as an, as an, as an organizer, you learn how to leaflet your neighborhood, how to talk to your neighbors, how to mobilize people. You go to, to Joe's Bakery and say, can I put a poster up here? You go to Cisco's, can I put a poster up here? You go to, to the restaurants, you go to the, to the bars, you go wherever people are and put out your information. Uh, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is, 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 is uh, today we're, you know, I'm talking back in the 60s when there were no computers, there was no social media and things like that. Other way to do it is hit the social media. So there's a lot of uh, uh, Chicanos living in East Austin that are young and that are, I mean, Jane and I, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not that young group anymore that was there. And we carry phones. We have we have Facebook on our phones. We have Twitter, and we have all. Not that we know how to use them, but they're on our phones, you know. Uh, and a lot of people have that. Let get get the Mac to start doing those type of things, you know. They need to, and they need to get staff that will s listen to you. Not necessarily agree with you all the time. But at least sit down and listen to you, because I've sat down with staff, and the first thing that they say, "Well, that's not the kind of program we want here. That's not what. That doesn't go along with city policy. No, 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 no." And so you sit there and say, "Then why, why are we here? I wanted to donate my artwork to them. They said no." And so what we're going to wind up doing is donating it to the, to the Vincent Library at BT. What good is it going to do at the library for a bunch of, inter uh, of, of, of professors to, to look at our written materials and all of our documents, to research and all of that? It's going to be a, a, a place where 
regular folks ain't gonna be able to see it. You're gonna sit there for a bunch of intellectuals to get their PhDs and, and all of that, while some of that is very important that should, should be, I mean, we've got pictures, paintings, of uh, artists that grew up and lived in East Austin and are no longer with us, people would love to see their artwork because they remember them. They remember their name. They remember who they were. They remember, maybe they even remember the painting that we had. Oh, I remember when Juan did that painting or Jose or whoever. They need to put things up that, that people can feel a connection to. And if you continue to put things up of bombero from, from Latin all over Latin America, people aren't gonna feel a connection <coughs> to it. You need to put a, you, you need to put something like Roy's a painting of Cisco's a painting of, 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 of Joe's bakery, a painting of, of Mission Funeral Home, whatever that, that because people will come. Will come. And I know a couple of, of muralists that have been biting their nails for the opportunity to paint murals on those walls. Those are great, gigantic walls, and those murals would, would you would get, the city would get some incredible paintings and incredible murals that, that would make that a more attractive place for people to come to. You go into a building that is stark white, it feels cold, it feels unwelcoming, it doesn't feel friendly, it doesn't feel like familia, it doesn't feel like home. I mean, you go to any, any, any place in East Austin, you know, Theo's house, uh, your house, other people's houses, and you walk in and you feel comfortable because you see things that, that, that you have in your house. So you say, wow, this is a cool place. I like, I feel comfortable in this person's house. I feel comfortable in this in this business because you go to the restaurants, they've got Mexican things all over the place and you feel comfortable with them. You know, if you went to a restaurant that didn't a Mexican restaurant that didn't have piñatas or papel cortado or things like that, you tell yourself, this isn't really a Mexican restaurant. And you leave. <coughs> so staff should go to the Mexican restaurants <coughs> and people's houses and see how they're they're decorated. And, and decorate their mansion the same way. Anything else you want to add before we continue? I think that in the end, the community lost the battle over the Mexican-American Cultural Center because the intent was for it to be the Mexican-American Community Center. And that's what we've been saying loud and clear. There's a significant difference between a community center and a center that displays elements of a culture. And I think that that's really, I think the community lost that battle. And what's been going on ever since the facility was built is different elements of the community have totally different ideas about how to perhaps achieve community with that facility. Well, I think Jane has always told me the story about anthropologists says an anthropologist is, is taught to go into a community and observe, stand back and observe, look, document, and research and write about that community. I think 
culture center is that anthropologists it doesn't want to go native because it's afraid to go native and an anthropologist that has gone native is one that has in, that has emerged himself or herself in the community that he's supposed to or she's supposed to be sitting back and, and objectively observing. Jane is a good example <laughs> of a native anthropologist. <laughs> and I think the problem with the Max is that they're, they're trying so hard to stay objective, ob objective and above the fray. They, they need to get into, into it a little bit more and become part of the community where they, they are, in fact, the community that, that, that will be, they, they need to be more feeling, more, more understanding, more willing to accept what the community really is about because they've got a charge of taking care of this, this big building that is overall a, 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 an excellent facility that could be used 100 times more better than it is today. And they just need to let go of their fear. And I think it's fear because they've got two things. They've got two, two rulers, if you will. One is the city. The city says, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. And the city, after all, pays their salaries. And provides the only funding for any of X, Y, and Z. The community <coughs> says, we want you to do A, B, and C. A logical, smart director and staff is going to say, the city wants, the community wants A, B, and C. The city wants X, Y, and Z, but the city pays my salary. So let's do X, Y, and Z. And I think what Gilbert has been trying really hard to work out with not, he keeps saying staff, but he also means board, that the, the entities that are involved with the MAC, he's been working with, with all of those individuals as best he can to try and figure out, okay, the city is funding X, Y, and Z. We need A, B, and C. Can we get M, N, and O? <laughs> Which is a compromise between the two to try and move it a bit in the direction towards the community. So we talk about community a lot. And um, earlier you talked about 1960, 1970s creating, bringing the Brown Berets and all those other organizations, having this political awakening. Um, do you think that maybe it's time for the Latino, Hispanic, Mexican-American population in East Austin to reawaken and say, this is what we want our center to be like. Yes, yes. I think that uh, we do have a great opportunity to do that. We've got organizations that are, that are popping up. One of them is um, Hermanos de East Austin that are doing a great job by uh, by getting people registered to vote. I bought a t-shirt from Hermanos de East Austin and signed a little thing. But I've never been invited to a meeting or to anything. 
the only time that I ever see them getting together is when they go to, to uh, uh, como se llama, on the coldest day in town. Oh, rabbits. Rabbits, to rabbits, and they say, let's get together and let's have some cold ones with rabbits. There's other organizations that are out there that are, that are, that are doing stuff, but for me, it's time that we get out of the beer joints and get into the streets because sitting around a bar drinking beer and talking politics ain't gonna get the job done. I think we need to get together and, and I, I admire the, 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 the voter registration because it really, where a lot of the things that we're talking about could make changes to the map if we had the proper people sitting on, sitting on council. If we had enough representation, like for example, the 10-1 uh, redistricting plan, it would be great. But um, there's a lot of young people out there that are trying to do what they can. And there's a lot of old people like myself that are trying to do what they can. But I don't think we're moving anywhere. I think we need to be somewhere in the middle, like Jane said. And we, we invigorate ourselves into doing a lot of the things that we used to do. I mean, I have many friends that we used to go and raise hell at city council, we raise hell at, uh, on the streets, um, sit down with, with council in private meetings and say, this is what we want, this is, we demand this, and, and things moved. But then it sort of, we went back to sleep. And I think there's, a lot of really good young people out there that uh, need to pick up the, the banners again, and, and, and we need to move forward because um, one of the things that, that I have, have, have said, I, I wrote this little, uh, I'm not a writer or anything like that, but this little, about four pages of a play about East Austin in 2050. Austin in 2050, and, and there's a lot of um, characters that talk about. Do you remember how? Do you remember the Holly Street Power Plant? Do you remember Rainy Street? Do you remember uh, how the Holly neighborhood used to be like? Do you remember Fiesta Gardens before they made it into a metropolitan park? Do you remember when dogs used to walk themselves in Wisconsin? Now that you can't, dogs can't walk themselves in Wisconsin. Do you remember when East Sixth Street was not a not uh, um, the, the trailer trailer <laughs> park, the destination for 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 uh, people uh, for for hipsters. This um, city planner invites calls to East Austin. I telling them we're taking a bus load of developers and hipsters to East Austin to see what it looks like, and we want you to dress up and start making tortillas and turn on the Mexican music and do all the things like a, a have a have a, a, a party so when the hipsters come through they can see what East Austin used to look like. And, and the old man gets really pissed off and he says, well, he calls all his friends and he says, we'll show him what kind of party we can have. And he says, Lori, you go down to HEB and buy the crackers. Jane, you go down to, um, to Home Depot and get the sticks and Somebody else will get the magic markers. And so they all come in and they all start making picket signs. And 
in the background you got uh, uh, Juan Tejera and Conjunto Aslam with a DJ, the picket band going on. So they're all working hard. And we'll show the central beat, what kind of party we can throw in. So the, the, the bus comes through East Austin and there's people, remember Rainy Street, no more gentrification. Que viva Juarez Lincoln. And, and remember uh, Joe's Bakery and remember whatever was destroyed and rem remember Que Viva La Raza and all of this and people are yelling and screaming and the bus drives through and then the, there's a, a lady says, was it only me or did, it, did, um, did anybody feel, we, walked, we went through this block and there was this weird feeling that I had about this block. I thought I heard some voices there were those SOBs, you know, the sons of bitches. They didn't even pay attention to it. We were screaming and yelling, and all these people just drove right by. They didn't even pay attention to what we were telling them. And we don't want them here. And uh, and the lady says, I just had this feeling when we went by there. And um, the tour guides tell them, you know, every time I bring a bus to this street, I, I get the same reaction from, from, from the passengers like you. And he says, but they, they say that the spirits of the people that used to live here are still around. And that's the name of my friend. In other words, in 2015, we are here. And I believe that it's probably going to happen sooner than that. I think 2030. So. So it's time to, time to wake up. Yeah, it's time to wake up. Before it's too late. Before it's too late, start fighting. I don't know if we said anything about about Friday night <laughs> or or, or, or Friday night. That's the, the Mac. Mac, but.